This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. Every child deserves a team. That's the belief behind Jigsaw Learning, a proud sponsor of the B Podcast Network. And it's why the company, founded by educators Curtis and Lorna Hewson, focuses on ensuring success for all learners through collaborative response, an approach in which every child is supported by a team. Through customized professional learning that incorporates workshops, leadership development, online learning opportunities, and more, Jigsaw Learning can guide you every step of the way to create a plan to maximize the collective capacity in your schools. Learn more at jigsawlearning.ca. TL Talk Radio, Season 2, Episode 28. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 28 of TL Talk Radio, a regular podcast with Lynn Funy-Hetton and Randy Ziegenfuss, where our goal is to engage you in learning, motivate you to share your work, and inspire you to lead for the change we need in schools for the digital age. I'm Randy Ziegenfuss. And I'm Lynn Funy-Hetton. Good morning. Hey, Lynn. How are you today? I'm well. So today we're talking about, we're talking with Anya Kamenetz. Anya is the author of three fascinating books on the future of education, Generation Debt, D. IYU, EduPunks Edupreneurs, and the Coming Transformation of Higher Education, and the most recent, The Test, Why Our Schools Are Obsessed with Standardized Testing, But You Don't Have to Be. Focusing on the topic of testing in American schools certainly very relevant to us in our work. Anya is currently the lead digital education reporter for NPR. Previously, she covered technology innovation, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship for five years as a staff writer for Fast Company magazine. She's contributed to the New York Times, the Washington Post, New York Magazine, Slate, and oh, the Oprah magazine. She was named a 2010 Game Changer in Education by the Huffington Post, received 2009 and 2010 National Awards for Education Reporting from the Education Writers Association, and was submitted for a Pulitzer Prize in Feature Writing by The Village Voice in 2005, where she had a column called Generation Debt. Anya graduated from Yale University in 2002 and currently lives in Brooklyn. Welcome to the show, Anya. Thanks for having me, Randy. It's great that you're here. So let's kick off the conversation. Author Warren Berger describes a beautiful question as one that is ambitious and actionable. What is the beautiful question behind your book, The Test? Well, what led me to write the book was the question, why is it when there are so many amazing innovators working in American schools and there's so much that we know about what kids really need to thrive and there's so much urgency about adapting schools for the 21st century, why aren't the changes and the innovations that we see 
making their way from the edges to the mainstream. And the answer that I found again and again was that a standardized system of accountability that was very narrow in what it looked at was really standing in the way of those changes. So absolutely, standardized testings is affecting what we're doing in our schools today. And we struggle with finding a balance between uh, making sure students understand the test genre and have the strategies to be successful and also doing the more important work that we want our students to do and have uh, the skills related to communication and creativity and those other skills that are not assessed on a, on a standardized test. So your book is organized conveniently into sections on a problem and then a solution. And let's start with the problem that you've identified. Can you help us to uh, help our listeners and parents understand some of the testing system flaws that we have here in our country? Sure. I mean, I think the most obvious ones that are clear to anyone who participates in, uh, in education today uh, is that we're testing too much, mm-hmm. that because of the high stakes attached to the tests, that they're sort of taking up more than their fair share of space because uh, there's a need to prepare for the tests, mm-hmm. to uh, spend a lot of time administering the tests, and to sort of uh, give students the ability to uh, to rest and recuperate after the tests. And so they're, they're really central to the whole process. But that really, I mean, that's, that's, an, that's an immediate pain point that students and teachers are experiencing. Mm-hmm. But it is secondary to an even bigger problem, which is that we're not testing what we mean to test, that standardized tests are very, very good at exposing a child's socioeconomic background, um, and they can tell you limited amounts of information about what they have uh, memorized uh, on in a particular content area, and they tell you almost nothing about a child's ability to communicate, to think creatively about their motivation, about their approach to learning or any kind of information that might be actionable uh, for a teacher. So that the tests that we use to make accountability decisions in schools today are of uniformly low quality. They cost very little money to administer. They are machine gradable. And they are not uh, intended to be or designed to be giving detailed information about individuals. In fact, they're designed to show large trends and distributions over populations. And because of that, they provide very little benefit to individual students um, or even at the classroom level. I think that uh, the idea that the tests were originally designed for those large trends, as you say, and we've, in America, we've sort of bastardized that and, and have drilled down to the student level and using them in inappropriate ways. Uh, in, your, in your book on page 63, I love that the quote uh, that says, tests represent the urge to sort and stratify, to catalog, correct for, normalize, and ultimately erase differences. So what is America's obsession with, with testing and quantifying learning? And, and how does this all start? And why has it gotten so out of control from a historical and a political sense? If you can give us a little bit of background there. I, I love this question, um, and I think it, it it really does go deeply into the the character of who we are as a nation, and in two ways. One is that America is a broad, polyglot democracy. You know, we we believe very strongly in equality, inequality, and we are also a cutthroat, highly competitive, mass capitalist society. And on that 
uh, axis, we believe very, very strongly in meritocracy. So in order to resolve those two core fundamental ethical beliefs or operating systems, we have this notion that the, the spoils go to those who work hard and who merit um, the, the most. And so the way that it's fair is that everyone gets an equal shot and then the people that work the hardest and are the best are going to be the winners. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we rely very strongly on what we consider to be meritocratic systems and our education system is the center one um, in order to figure out who's going to get the goods in our society. Um, and, and that then runs headlong into our passion for precision. This is a very scientifically oriented and technologically oriented society. We believe that knowledge and empiricism can, um, can bring about salvation. And so we are always looking for new technologies and new innovations that are going to uh, bring about a wonderful new uh, era of prosperity for everyone. And psychometrics, the, the, the effort to make psychology scientific and the effort to turn notions about human superiority into something that was data-driven and entirely objective, uh, really kind of clicked into the American psyche at a time in the 1800s and 1900s when we were defining our national character. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. We, we kind of believed that we would turn over to the hands of very learned men and professors the, uh, the ability to decide who would be meriting our, our resources and our investment and our intention um, in order to become successful. And that, that happened, you know, a long time ago. We sort of decided that this is how it was going to work. And our mass education system came increasingly to rely on the use of scientific-looking, scientistic approaches to measuring something that has always been immeasurable, which is human potential and human, mm-hmm. um, human achievement. So how do we upgrade and reform our current systems of accountability and assessment um, to meet some of those needs that you've just identified? Well, I really do think we have to strike at the philosophical root of the problem, Lynn. And, you know, I've come to kind of agree that we have to bring out into the open some of these assumptions. And, you know, when, whenever we use phrases that have come into common um, use, like the achievement gap, we're subscribing to the idea that the difference, the average difference in performance between low-income African-American students and high-income white students is something that has anything to do with those individuals as opposed to systematic disadvantage as a group. And so thinking about um, how we're going to, you know, what are our values and what can we actually improve upon? Because we've had uh, many, many years of high-stakes testing, and those high-stakes tests were supported initially and are still in some ways supported by folks uh, on the left and in the civil rights movement who believed really strongly that the more we shine a light on these inequities, the better we'll be able to handle them. And, uh, you know, that has not come to pass. By, by merely measuring, uh, we haven't been able to eradicate these inequalities. And so it's time to have a conversation about what is it that we can uh, get information about that we can then translate into actually helping students learn? Mm-hmm. And so I really see that as, as falling into a couple of different categories. But on a fundamental level, you know, what a teacher needs to know about a student is uh, their mindset, how they approach learning, 
how what is affecting their motivation to learn, what is they're really passionate about, what interests them, and uh, you know their, their state of knowledge at a point in time is is information, but it's not the the only crucial information that that a teacher needs to help a student reach that that individual person's uh, highest level. I'm I'm really intrigued by this uh, idea, your explanation to the earlier question about that really our ultimate beliefs, deeply mm-hmm. rooted beliefs in our country, whether we want to admit it or not, mm-hmm. is really what's driving a lot of this. So as practitioners, as school leaders, mm-hmm. how do we begin to try to change that conversation? Because we want to change that conversation. Mm-hmm. And we don't really know how to do that, I think. And I'm speaking of us as a group. Um, so what what thoughts do you have for us as practitioners to begin to change the conversation? Well, I think that's a really good question. And I think um, there are there are practices that go on in high-functioning classroom communities around this country that are waiting to be upheld and to be expanded to create a new vision of assessment. And, you know, in a high-functioning classroom, uh, students are prompted to self-reflect and give themselves feedback. They're prompted to give feedback to each other as peers very thoughtfully. And teachers give students feedback in a way that is uh, formative, right? It's at the moment it is an encouragement for revision. It is encouragement to try harder. It's, I believe that you can do better. And so that's why I'm telling you, you know, what you, what happened and what went wrong this time. And so those habits that come forth in, in high functioning learning communities, uh, those are the, the modes of, of assessment that I believe need to be uh, made much more common and valorized and given resources and effort and new technologies to help us uh, make those visions stronger because ultimately what we're, what we're working toward you know in in the in the working world our students are very very clear on the fact that they're not going to be bubbling in answers they're not going to be solely responsible for their own work they're going to be working on teams and uh, they are not going to be working toward a external standard that's arbitrarily determined. In fact, it's up to each person in this world to determine what their limits are and what their ultimate goal is and what success means to them. And so if we're not giving our students the chance to define for themselves what success means, then we're really shortchanging them in their ability to develop um, their own powers of observation and of, and of evaluation. So it seems like we need to highlight the practices in these high-functioning classrooms Mm -hmm. and make sure that they are validated and, as you said, provided the resources to expand them uh, and make them more the norm. So once we do this, who are the people that should be our audience in terms of um, sort of proclaiming (laughs) these positive practices? And are there other groups of people such as parents, who we might uh, work with to get this story out there, to help mm-hmm. to shift um, this this story about testing and about assessment? I think that's a really great question. And, um, you know, I'm kind of going to circle back around to say that I don't believe that data-driven decision-making is all bad. It's just that you have to be really, really careful about the kind of data you're collecting, about the quality of it, the sources of it, mm-hmm. and the audiences for it. And so... 
when it comes to making the case for the kind of more holistic or performance-based assessments that I've been talking about or authentic assessments, very often that case is made with respect to external performance metrics like uh, attendance, behavior, graduation rates, uh, enrollment and persistence in college, as well as students' own um, subjective uh, impressions of their classroom experience. And, or, and even public health indicators uh, in the local community, mental health referrals. And so looking at how we can make that case more broadly, I sort of believe that good data will drive out, can drive out the bad data. In other words, uh, understanding that ELA and math scores are not the sum total of a school, um, we have to be able to be very scientific, truly scientific in the way that we're open to inquiry in choosing benchmarks that are relevant mm-hmm. and that are relevant to the communities that in which people are working. You can't make um, you can't make good comparisons about the value add of a teacher, for example, mm-hmm. without understanding the background and demographics of those of the students that the teacher's working with. So more data rather than fewer pieces of data and uh, get more curious about the types of data that we're using, but but not to completely abandon it. I think that so that's one that's really important. I mean, the, retor- the rhetoric is also really important. I think not giving any ground. You know, the I talked before about the negative impacts of standardized testing, and, and the one that um, I think is worth underlining or returning to is um, the way in which we're undermining the teacher profession, right? The loss of morale and the loss of autonomy in our classrooms that is driving people out and exactly the types of people that you want to have in the classroom, which are teachers that want to take full ownership um, and and be co-creators of their students' experience. So, uh, you know, promoting that vision of restoring great teaching and great learning uh, through both a holistic assessment approach as well as uh, a truly wide-ranging data-driven approach, um, I think that's how you change the consciousness. And it's a very, you know, it's a big, big order. Do you see any states or organizations moving towards that, what you've just described? I see some interesting things happening um, under ESSA. I think we're likely to see more. Mm -hmm. I've had a number of people tell me that I need to check out what's going on in New Hampshire which is incorporating performance-based assessments into its statewide accountability system. Um, there is a robust and interesting debate going on in the court, around the core districts in California about whether it's possible to cultivate as well as measure social and emotional capacities. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I think that we're going to hear about more. I mean, there's there's competency-based learning experiments going on. In uh, There were laws recently passed in Florida and in Utah to expand some pilot programs. So, you know, th- there's increased flexibility and a lot of, uh, a lot of I think, momentum for change. So I'm, I'm, I'm a bit optimistic. That's exciting. <laughs> so near the end of the book, uh, you share a set of proven strategies that will help our learners better perform on the tests and also in life in general. Talk to us a little bit about test. Sure. So, I, you know, understanding that for the, for the time being, most of our kids still go to schools that require annual tests of math and reading. Um, I talk about how you can turn those into opportunities. So um, T stands for managing the test. And the notion here is that um, 
a test can be an opportunity to raise critical thinking in our students if we start to get them to think about how tests are designed and how they're built. And, and while tests can be, you know, unreliable measures of students' knowledge states, they actually work pretty well as logic puzzles. And so for some pretty high-level um, test tutors that I've spoken to, they really see teaching kids to beat a test as being an exercise in critical thinking and in um, questioning what you think you know. So uh, I talk about a little bit about those strategies. The E in test stands for managing emotions and energy. And this, of course, will help you uh, throughout, uh, you know, any kind of um, education or other effort you're engaged in. The notion of um, using mindfulness to counter test anxiety um, to, you know, using healthy strategies to make sure that kids are ready to learn. Um, physical fitness, good sleep, limiting screen time. I mean, it's all very basic types of things. But I think the interest in mindfulness in schools in particular is something that's arising in in some ways in uh, in reaction to the anxiety created by high stakes testing, and it might be a a good uh, you know reaction. Um, the S in test stands for managing self motivation, um, and this is the idea that you know tests are externally imposed uh, exercises, and ideally you're able to balance that out in a classroom setting by having students uh, choose and have, you know, passion-based and interest-driven learning um, at the same time because that's where you're really going to see students' uh, interests unleashed. And can you connect uh, learning um, the things that they have to learn to be on the test to things that they would choose to learn? And there's a really interesting program that I'm looking at right now in New York City called Fresh Prep where they take uh, really well-done, well-produced hip-hop tracks and use them to prep kids for ELA and social studies tests. Um, and it's way beyond the sort of like, uh, you know, um, mnemonic kind of rhymes. It's really, really deep uh, t- rhymes about the Cold War and about rhetorical strategies. And it's just, it's a whole lot of fun and, of course, connects with kids on their interest level. Um, and then finally, the T stands for managing our tone. And I think um, there's more and more awareness of the fact that the, the test anxiety and the unhappiness that kids experience in school as a result of high-stakes testing um, is is very related to the anxiety that teachers experience, as well as parents, because parents are, are bringing up kids in an incredibly competitive mm-hmm. and anxious and precarious world. And we want our kids to do really, really well. And uh, our kids take that attitude and internalize it very strongly. And so making that explicit and having a critical conversation about uh, what what these arbitrary standards mean and what it means if you feel like you, you're worried about meeting them or not meeting them, I think is, is really important for us to level with our kids about the values that we're transmitting, um, whether actively or passively. Mm-hmm. Earlier, you had mentioned some places that have been doing some more progressive work in this area of assessment. And uh, from as practitioners, I think that definitely in the last several years, maybe three to five years, there's much more conversation on our level around these ideas, not only around testing, but around some of the other things that you said in terms of progressive education. Mm-hmm. As an active blogger, how have you seen the... Um, the landscape change over those years? Have you seen it change in the same way that we're seeing it change? The conversations that happen? That's a really interesting question. Um, I think that it is changing. And I think that 
the changes are likely to be broad ranging because test based accountability is only one component of an entire worldview that has be- taken the name education reform mm. and that brings with it a number of ideas, including choice, charter schools, um, weakening union protections for, for teachers, uh, an increased role in technology. Of course, there's there's interest across the spectrum in, in, in bringing technology into classrooms, but a very like vendor driven mm-hmm. idea mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Of, of ed tech. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. World is supported by, you know, very well financed uh, foundations and organizations and a network of people that um, put out books and uh, have uh, think tanks and, and policymakers. And what's interesting to me is that because of the unpopularity of high stakes standardized tests, the whole agenda is weakening. You know, people feel that there's less credibility to all of that. And part of that become, comes from the fact that, you know, we've had a growth in, tra- growth in charter schools and the results are decidedly mixed. They're pretty much one-third do better, one-third do the same, one-third do worse. Um, and so there hasn't been any magic bullets, um, whether it comes from reorganizing and closing schools or, or uh, doing this, you know, this very intensive focus on testing. And so I think that the, the, the time is coming for a very big picture conversation about, you know, the old recipes or the, the recipes that have been promulgated over the last decade and a half um, are seeming stale to people. And so what now? What do we do now? How do we actually get better? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, you know, we don't, we don't necessarily believe that any side has all the answers. Mm-hmm. And and yet here in our state of Pennsylvania, while we've seen more conversation around and amongst our colleagues, uh, practitioners in the field, there seems to be very little interest from the public. Um, we we for example, we've not we just got our. 1516 state budget passed and the reason why it took nine months to do that was because nobody was nobody was actively engaged in the fact that public schools weren't getting any money nobody really seemed to care about that and little less you know that's more operational stuff and and and, you know they really don't care about generally what goes on in in the classroom because most of them don't have children in the classroom so there seems to be this like we're excited in education to talk about and to make some of these changes, but policymakers and the public, maybe not so much. I mean, I can understand why that feels very dispiriting. And I think there's always going to be a passion divide between people who have kids in school and people who don't. Um, as someone who has a child who just entered public school, I feel the difference in myself, you know. Um, even as an education reporter, I didn't think as much about K-12 before I had a child of my own. Um, but, you know, if there is a bright spot in the reform conversation that's been going on in the last 15 years or so is that I do see more people of more walks of life, including very bright young college graduates, including people in the technology industry who are thinking about education and who, who are thinking about the problems inherent in education. Now, there is a, you know, Sometimes there's an arrogance that comes to that when people are new to the field and they suddenly believe that they have all the answers. But the fact that they're interested, I think, is important. And I think that there's an opportunity there to expand the scope of the conversation that we're having about uh, education and, and indeed what it means for all of our futures. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and it's my, you know, I'm bound as a journalist who is, you know, trying to connect to a broad audience of NPR and through my books to make the case to people that this is something they should care about. You know, if you cover, if you're an educated person, if you cover, if you follow politics, if you follow science, if you follow health, you should follow education and you should be curious about what happens in education. And this isn't about other people's children. It's about uh, our country and our competitiveness and innovation and, you know, a whole bunch of things that the average person needs to care about. I will point out on the cynical side and when I do feel cynical about it, um, you know, we've, we've met, we've come to a point as a country where more than half of students in public schools are at or near the poverty line. And because of that incredible division and that shameful growth in in child poverty, there really are two Americas. And when it comes to thinking about the fate of children in public school, I think there's, there can be a distancing effect when you think about the, the fact that kids in public schools are majority minority and majority poverty. Mm -hmm. And that's something that we have to really overcome very aggressively. So certainly a lot to think about and ideas that will help to propel us forward. What beautiful questions are you currently thinking about in your role and as you work on your writing? Oh, great question. Um, so my my next book and the, the, the questions that are preoccup- preoccupying me right now have to do with how technology is affecting childhood and mm-hmm. the role of technology in learning and in uh, affecting how we communicate and how we create and uh, what are the positive paradigms for technology and family life and how do we develop good social mores and roles so that we're not feeling controlled by our technology, but we feel that we're in control. Interesting. We sometimes joke with no phones at lunch. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you so much for joining us, Anya. You've certainly given us a lot to think about and in some ways hope. Um, looking forward to another another way, another opportunity to assess students in many of the skills that we opened the, the show talking about. For those of you who are interested or are listeners to learn more about Anya's work, you can visit in the show notes. We'll link her books there. Um, also some ebooks and videos, her blog at NPR, um, Anya's website, and you can even follow her on Twitter at Anya, the number one Anya. Thank you so much. I really appreciated speaking with you. Oh, thank, thank you, Anya. It was really a Wonderful talking to you and getting to know a little bit more about your work. And thanks very much for all that you contribute in a positive way to uh, the work of us practitioners in terms of challenging our thinking and, and getting the general public to be interested in education and the value and the importance of it. Um, I think that was one of my big takeaways here. So thank you. Inspiring curiosity. <laughs> thank you so much. You all inspire me. And please feel free to get in touch on Twitter if you have any ideas of things I should be covering or questions or even pushback. I'm always happy to hear feedback. Each episode, we leave you with a couple of questions to think about with the idea of provoking some conversation. This episode's questions include, as a parent or teacher, how do you build resilience and calm in learners who are facing the challenges of the current testing system? And that's a really applicable question, especially at this Mm -hmm. time of year. What can you do tomorrow to be a voice in changing our current systems of accountability and assessment? If you've enjoyed today's episode, would like to comment or just find out more about the resources and links we shared in today's episode, check out the show notes at tltalkradio.org and look for season two, episode 28. 
We'd love for you to rate the show on iTunes. Let us know your star rating and consider leaving a one or two sentence review. If you have time to do that, you'll help new folks discover this content. That's it for now. We'll see you next episode for a conversation with another innovative thought leader. Thanks again, Anya. Thank Thank you. you. Bye-bye. Bye. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, and improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash BE.